Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. and welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Joy Bauer and I'm super excited to be back hosting Dietitian Connections Accredited Dietitian to Dietitian web event series. I want to extend a very big thank you to the sponsor of today's event, the National Honey Board, an agriculture promotion group educating about the benefits and uses of honey and honey products. Clients love honey because it's sweet, it's natural, it's delicious, but there's so much more to know. For those interested, you can learn more about the prebiotics in honey and find free science-based resources at honey.com slash nutrition. Now, before we get started on today's topic, the role of prebiotics in gut health, how prebiotics impact the microbiome to benefit gut and overall health, I just have a few quick housekeeping items. So first, there will be time for questions from the audience during today's conversation. Just so everybody's in the know, here's what we plan to cover. What the research tells us about prebiotics affecting the microbial makeup of the gut and how that impacts head-to-toe health, the different types of prebiotics and whether some are more beneficial than others, and the tactics that are useful in helping patients and clients incorporate prebiotics and probiotics into everyday eating. But if there's something that we don't cover that you want to know about, please, please add your questions to the Q&A box, not the chat box. So the Q&A box is down below. And additionally, you're going to be able to see questions that other members of the audience have submitted, and you can upvote their question if you'd also like to hear it answered. And this is super helpful to us because it will alert us to which cues are the most popular. Second, if you have any tech issues, and hopefully you won't, please message the Dietitian Connection team through the chat box. So your questions for our speakers go in the Q&A box and any tech issues, hopefully none, in the, in the chat box below. And then finally, there will be a recording available after the session. And you'll get an email sh- shortly after the webinar ends with details about the recording and how to obtain your continuing education certificate. And now to introduce our wonderful guests. So first up, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce Andrea Hardy. Andrea is a registered dietitian from Calgary, Canada, where she runs a multidisciplinary digestive health practice called Ignite Nutrition. She specializes in gut health and gastrointestinal diseases and is recognized in the media as Canada's gut health expert. She is passionate about translating science into easy to digest, yes, pun intended, (laughs) information to support a healthy gut. She has spoken on the TEDx stage as well as internationally about digestive health. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, my pleasure. Next up, it is my great pleasure to introduce Hannah Holscher. Hannah is an Associate Professor of Nutrition in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition and a member of the Division of Nutritional Sciences, the Institute of Genomic Biology, and the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois. 
She completed postdoctoral training focused on the human microbiome, a PhD in nutritional sciences, and a BS in food science and human nutrition at the University of Illinois. She is also a registered dietitian. Dr. Holscher's laboratory uses clinical interventions and computational approaches to study the interactions of nutrition, the gastrointestinal microbiome, and health. Welcome, Hannah. Hello. Thank you. Good to be here, Joy. Oh, it's great to have both of you. Honestly, we are so grateful and super, super excited to hear bo both of you speak and, and your like wealth of knowledge base. So now it's time for me to jump right into the questions. And I love this format, a casual Q&A we're all going to have. And then we're going to take questions from the audience. So my first question is for Andrea. Let's start at the basics. What is the difference between prebiotics and probiotics? And I'm going to add a second piece of this. How do prebiotics and probiotics work together to confer gut benefits? Sure. So there is a lot of confusion, not only from the public, but healthcare professionals on what actually constitutes a prebiotic and probiotic. And so the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics have some agreed upon definitions that are widely accepted and we should be using as dietitians so that we're all on the same page when it comes to helping support industry with nutrition information, when it comes to talking in the science, and when it comes to talking with patients. And so ultimately, what I see a lot of times as dietitians is, is uh, one of the challenges we have is people don't use these terms properly, and uh, it makes for mass confusion. And so I'm hoping that these definitions will help all the dietitians listening today. And so probiotics are defined as live microorganisms when they're administered at adequate amounts infer a benefit to the host, so our health. And so an important thing to know about probiotics is that they're strain specific, meaning that not all probiotics benefit all conditions. We kind of want to think of them like drugs. So certain strains administered at adequate amounts have benefits in specific cases. For example, irritable bowel syndrome, C. diff, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And so those are some examples in which probiotics might be used. Now, jumping to prebiotics, these are different. And so prebiotics are substrates that are selectively utilized by host microorganisms in our gut to confer a benefit to our health. And so when it comes to this definition, it's important to note, it, note that they're selectively utilized. So this means that the substrate or non-digestible carbohydrate is metabolized by microorganisms in our gut, and then that there's research or evidence at a safe and defined dose to have benefits to our health. So currently, things that meet the definition of probiotic or prebiotics story are things like non-digestible carbohydrates. However, there are some really interesting candidate prebiotics coming out, things like polyphenols and conjugated fatty acids that have prebiotic-like activity in the gut. So down the road, as we get more uh, robust research, those things may be classified as prebiotics. But for now, it's those non-digestible carbohydrates. And so not all fibers meet this definition, but some examples of well-researched fibers, which is Hannah's area of expertise, are things like fructooligosaccharides and galactooligosaccharides. And so that kind of teases out the difference between those two things, prebiotics and probiotics, and uh, how they specifically uh, work in our guts to infer a benefit to our health. Okay, great. And so um, thank you for that, because you really broke it down. And I think it is very confusing um, until we just heard you present it like that. <laughs> and, and so if can your gut still be balanced if, in fact, you're lacking either one or the other, a probiotic pre or a prebiotic? Like, how does that work? I'm going, to, I'm going to stay with you for one minute, Andrea, because then I'm going to get to Hannah and like really get into the weeds with some research. Yeah. So ultimately, um, probiotics are uh, microorganisms that come from outside our body. So they're not needed for human health. Um, I think a lot of times people think that they need to take a probiotic for gut health, but that's not necessarily the case. We want to think of them more like therapeutic agents at this point that infer specific benefits. 
Uh, when it comes to prebiotics, prebiotics absolutely infer specific health benefits. Um, however, we don't have specific criteria on how much prebiotics an individual should consume at this point, how many grams a day. However, we do know that um, consumption of these things do have specific benefits, which I know Hannah is going to get into, and I'm not going to uh, spoil the fun there. <laughs> Hannah, this is the perfect lead in for me. Um, so what does the research actually tell us about how prebiotics in particular impact the gut's microbial makeup? Yeah, absolutely. So um, firstly, I think Andrea did a great job providing an overview. I just wanted to add, I'm, I'm big on mnemonic devices. And so I just wanted to add one quick caveat. The way that I always remember and suggest people keep probiotics separate from prebiotics is to remember there's an O in probiotics. So those are organisms. And there's an E in prebiotics. And I think of energy. So prebiotics provide energy for gut microbes. And so um, that was just one other little um, tidbit to add in there. Because like I said, I'm, I'm really big on mnemonics and um, little tricks to remember things. So what about the research? Okay. So my group does research in this area. So we'll do clinical trials. Um, we've got some going on right now, wrapping up. But I want to point you to one of the recent reviews that we published in Advances in Nutrition. And that was, it's an open access publication. Anyone can access it for free and use it as a resource. And so in that, we highlight some of the, um, the body of research on how prebiotics, in this case, we are specifically focused on inulin type fructans. So that includes the um, fructooligosaccharides, inulin and oligofructose. It doesn't include the research on galactooligosaccharides. All of those are considered to be um, prebiotics by ISAP, which is the scientific board that established those definitions Andrea shared with all of you. But what we see in the literature is that when humans consume these in adequate amounts, and we generally need at least three grams per day, maybe upwards of five, depending on how many calories you consume per day, but they'll enrich um, microbes you've probably heard of, like bifidobacteria and lactobacilli. And there's emerging evidence that it's also, they can also enrich um, microorganisms that are increasingly linked to health benefits like fecalibacterium prosmitzi. So part of the reason these microbes can enrich when we consume prebiotics is they can use those energy sources. They have the tools available to break them down. So I think of it like our toolbox. So if I need to hang a picture and I open up my toolbox, I hope that I've got a hammer and a nail in there. So the bifidobacteria and lactobacilli have the hammers to break down those fructooligosaccharides, galactooligosaccharides, and other inulin-type fibers, where other microbes um, like clostridium um, may not have the hammers. They may only have screwdrivers, so that's not going to be able to break those down. So one of the other important things when they break down these prebiotics is they can produce short-chain fatty acids, which are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And those are linked to a range of health benefits, both gut health, so doing things like reducing the pH, so certain microorganisms, um, some certain pathogens aren't able to survive as well within the gastrointestinal tract. They can make the barrier of your gastrointestinal tract um, stronger. And they can also, the short-chain fatty acids can also affect health in general. So in our review, we talk about some of the benefits to um, absorption of calcium and magnesium. And, and that's actually um, increased absor intestinal absorption of calcium is part of the reason why inulin-type fructans and galactooligosaccharides are actually accepted by the Food and Drug Administration as dietary fibers. Um, inulin-type fructans can also help improve satiety. Some of, um, at certain doses, may help with laxation or regularity, and even can beneficially affect our lipid profiles and insulin sensitivity. So um, take a look at that review. It's got some more information, and um, I, hopefully it can be a useful resource for all of you because there's just so much to keep track of in this research area. Wow. And so within your research, are you showing finding that the prebiotic consumption is impacting in a beneficial way things like boosting immunity and mental acuity. And obviously you mentioned satiety, so weight management. You mentioned the absorption of 
calcium and magnesium. So that would mean bone strengthening. Like what exactly is the research showing with specific subcategories of health? Yeah. So in that advances in nutrition review, um, when we summarized all the literature, um, there wasn't a benefit in every area that we investigated, but the areas that did show specific benefits when consuming inulin type fructans included enhanced absorption of calcium and magnesium, increased satiety, um, improvements in intestinal barrier function, improvements in laxation, um, improvements in our lipid profiles and triglycerides, and improvements or superior insulin sensitivity. So that was specific to the inulin type brands. And then with um, galacto-oligosaccharides, um, some of those have shown, at least in one study, the area, the research is still evolving, but um, there has been a study that showed that Galactoligosaccharides can help with have psychological benefits with mood where they um, reduced one of the stress hormones, salivary, uh, that we can wow. test in saliva. And they also reduce the our responses to negative stimuli in some women when they um, did an fMRI scan for them. So um, we've also done some studies on stress and anxiety with a combination of fructooligosaccharides and galactooligosaccharides. And we didn't see as robust of results in our healthy adults that we were studying. So I'd say the research is still somewhat mixed on thinking about the gut-brain access and mood, but, but there is some data that's in that area. Really fascinating. It, it, it sounds like you are all on the cusp of the next big media explosion. I know that as dietitians, we're, we're in the know with prebiotics, but I think the world hears probiotics, probiotics, and there's so much attention grabbing headliners out there and coverage. But it, I feel like prebi prebiotics are going to be like the next hot thing. Do, would you guys agree with that? I mean, you're I in it, so I mean, it's probably like the little dog. I think hopefully Hannah would agree, but as a dietitian, I strongly believe that inclus including prebiotics in the diet is far more important than including probiotics because probiotics just have those really specific therapeutic benefits in only certain cases, whereas we should all be striving to include those prebiotic fibers in the diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I, I would echo that. So, I, I mean, again, especially because we can get some prebiotics like galacto-oligosaccharides, inulin-type fructans in, um, in certain plant-type foods, and then you can also find them in, added into food products. So, um, you know, I, I love to eat food. And so I think that's also, you know, a little bit more fun than taking a supplement for a very specific reason. So I'm, I'm certainly never going to hesitate to grab um, the probiotic that can help reduce traveler associated diarrhea, for example, if I've got to make an international trip. Um, but I'm not going to spend money like Andrea alluded to on that every day because that specific probiotic hasn't been shown to help with general health. So you have to be really specific and utilize some of the guides to make sure you're finding the right probiotic. So, um, just before I forget something like the U.S. probiotic guide, which I believe is also used in Canada, it can be a really great resource to find those strain-specific benefits of certain products when you are looking to um, dive in for those. Right. And it, okay, it's good a tool to that can be used very internationally. Sorry. It, it can be used internationally. So um, you just need to look at the specific strains that the chart covers and find similar products to apply the benefit. Because a lot of people are like, oh, it's for the US and Canada. How is it applicable to me in Australia or the UK? Um, it's still usable. So definitely take a look at that. It's a great dietitian tool. Great. Which, and which, is, which was great for you to mention because we do have a global audience. So thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. Um, and I, I know that people probably will be wondering things about probiotics. And now I'm going to go back to prebiotics and let's talk about the practical applications now. So Andrea, working with patients all the time, what types of foods are good sources of prebiotics? What what are what are the best sources? What should we know? Yeah, so ultimately, um, there's a lot of strategies we can uh, use to encourage patients to consume prebiotics through foods. So, being that the majority of my work is in disorders of the gut brain axis, 
Um, I've seen a couple of questions pop up in the Q&A is specifically around FODMAPs, fermentable carbohydrates, um, many of which are sources of prebiotics. And so uh, when it comes to patient care, it ultimately comes down to tailoring advice to meet your individual patient needs. So for example, a patient with irritable bowel syndrome who's pursuing the low FODMAP diet, um, we inherently reduce those intake of prebiotic fibers. However, in somebody who doesn't have a disorder of the gut-brain axis or isn't used, utilizing uh, a low FODMAP diet, um, there's lots of different ways in which we can encourage intake. So um, at the end of the day, it's really focusing on incorporating more plants in the diet. Plants are going to be where we find those prebiotic fibers. Um, and so that would be things like any high FODMAP food, onion, garlic, uh, artichoke, beans, lentils, soybean, uh, all of those things are going to incorporate in those prebiotic fibers. And so um, coming up with creative ways to include those with patients is a great option. Hannah also mentioned, there are a lot of foods that are actually um, that include prebiotic fibers to boost their fiber content. So you'll see these in things like granola bars, um, meal replacement shakes, cereals, breads, pastas. And so you can actually read the label and check for things like inulin, chicory, fructooligosaccharides, galactooligosaccharides, and all of those would contribute to increasing uh, that intake of prebiotic fiber and inferring those benefits that Hannah mentioned, like better um, um, insulin uh, insulin response and uh, blood sugar control and um, lowering the pH of the gut and um, helping to kind of create an environment where those pathogens are less likely to uh, grow and populate. So there's lots of different uh, benefits that you can consider and you just need to kind of consider what your patient profile is like. So in the general public, we want to focus on increasing those prebiotic fibers. In digestive disorders, you have to be more careful and consider patient symptom management. Okay, and and so you had mentioned, this this question might be for Hannah. You mentioned that, um, you know, obviously it's strain specific with probiotics. Now that we know where we can get prebiotics, do we have to really focus or encourage our patients to focus on a wide variety? Or let's say you have someone who's a very picky eater, but you're trying to get them to, to incorporate more prebiotics onto their menu. And, you know, there's like one or two things that they have on repeat over and over again. Will that make a difference in the microbiome diversity or is it just, you know, consume what you can get them to consume in whatever amounts we can get them to? A aside from having GI disorders that you want to be very, very careful with a strategy. Yeah, so I'd say overall the recommendation is, you know, eat the rainbow as you're thinking about getting lots of different types of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and legumes, because those will have lots of different types of fibers that are made up of different sugars and have different bonds and they can support the microbiota as a whole. And we're still, there's still not a definition of a healthy microbiome or a healthy microbiota. We're still trying to tease out the research on that. We have some general ideas and one of those may be um, increased diversity of the microbes in the gut can, is at least associated with, um, different health outcomes. So it can be more beneficial to have greater diversity. A really clear one is um, with the susceptibilities to clustered uh, C. diff infections. And so if you've needed to take antibiotics, for example, for a specific reason, and if your doctor prescribes those, you should certainly move forward with those. But those can affect the microbes in the gut and can knock down the diversity of the microbes in there, especially if they're very high doses and taken um, for multiple times. And so that's why, again, a diverse diet, these different plants can really help. Now that's focusing on fibers. And so if we want to look under the umbrella term of fiber, and again, think about prebiotics, in those cases, we're selectively stimulating certain microorganisms that have been shown to have health benefit by modifying the microbiota. So enriching bifidobacteria and lactobacilli and 
contributing to the production of metabolites like short-chain fatty acids. So in those cases, you do want to target more specific foods that would contain the um, inulinotype fructans or galacto-oligosaccharides, which are the um, accepted prebiotics. And then as Andrea pointed out, there are also candidate prebiotics, which are evolving. So things like human milk oligosaccharides, um, polyphenols, some fatty acids. So um, I think if we're just making a global recommendation, because we know hardly anyone consumes enough fiber, we can encourage more plant-based foods. And then also looking for specific products that may contain prebiotics um, that someone enjoys. So it's easy for me, for example, to have a bar in my purse as I'm running out the door. And so the bars that I have will have prebiotic fibers. And so it is an individual case and it will depend on who you're working with. But um, I think kind of weighing out and going both ways for both general and specific can be important to support gut health and overall health in general. And I just like to add there, like when you're thinking of, sorry, (laughs) when you're thinking of counseling. No, it's hard. I know. Um, I love Hannah's approach of like keeping those products on hand that have been, um, that have added prebiotics because ultimately we want to encourage adequate fiber intake each and every day. And those those uh, products can help to bridge the fiber gap on days where patients aren't getting enough plant foods um, to meet their intake of fiber. And so that's a really great way to bridge the fiber gap and create some consistency in fiber intake in your, in your patient's diet. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. And, and I know that we have a lot of dietitians that either work in a hospital setting or outpatient or have private practices that are working one-on-one. So Andrea, what are specific strategies, if you have any to offer up, that you rely on when you're helping your clients and patients incorporate prebiotics into their everyday eating plan? And how do you individualize this based on whatever their health goals may be? Right. So thinking of someone without a... um without an IBS diagnosis or who doesn't require a low FODMAP diet. Uh, ultimately, it comes to including more plants. And a place I really like to start uh, is actually with pulses. And so pulses, especially in Canada, we might be one of the largest producers of pulses in the world, uh, but we're certainly not one of the largest consumers of pulses. A lot of patients don't realize, you know, beans, peas, and lentils don't have to just go in chili. That's very, you know, I'm from Alberta. That's like the food that we eat that has pulses in it. So ultimately, um, another thing I really like about pulses is the affordability aspect with groceries going up so much. There's a really great way to create buy-in with patients around choosing pulses because they can help reduce grocery costs. And so some really simple strategies is just to help to improve patients' confidence and competence in the kitchen with these things. Because the most a lot of patients have ever done is open a can of kidney beans and throw them in a chili. So coming up with creative ways to incorporate them in. Uh, One of my favorite strategies, uh, because Alberta does have a lot of uh, beef and beef is a major focus in our diet, is to actually do half ground beef and half um, lentils. So take a can of lentils, uh, drain them, rinse them and mix them in with ground beef. It's a great way to cut grocery costs and substitute out some of those animal-based products for a plant-based product that can provide some of these prebiotic fibers. Um, Incorporating in more whole grains or even um, grains that are fortified with these prebiotic products. So there's some certain types of pastas out there that do use um, prebiotic fibers to up the fiber uh, of the product. So those sorts of things can be included, uh, whole grains, so like whole grain pasta, whole grain bread, uh, those sorts of things to uh, up the intake, uh, focusing more on nuts and seeds, uh, incorporating those in daily, and then of course, fruits and veggies. Uh, so getting those in at each meal is ideal and coming up with individualized creative strategies to get those in. So figuring out what your patient's barriers are to including those and coming up with creative solutions, whether that's, you know, a prep solution or, um, you know, a flavor solution or cooking solution. We really got to figure out what those barriers are to including those because that can be a challenge for people. Mm -hmm. What I love so much about this too is, you know, forever. 
as dietitians, we've been trying to get our patients, our friends, our family, the world eating more plant-based foods. And whether it, you know, in the past, it's been all about um, definitely fiber, but vitamins and minerals and antioxidants. And this gives us another hard evidence-based reason why they should be eating more plants. So, um, you know, it, it feels like a fresh new way to sort of, you know, hammer them over the head again with this message of more plants. And also it's, it's another, um, another thing to bring up is to the environment and the planet. Um, and I love the, you know, saving money. So everyone's looking, especially nowadays with the grocery store prices climbing and climbing and like such sticker shock when you walk into the markets. So letting them know they're going to save a little bit too. So that was great. You know, one other question that I had about client care or patient care is, have you been able to track beneficial outcomes specifically, like measurable outcomes from clients that have incorporated prebiotics? And what are some of the findings? Yeah, so um, in working with patients, I think predominantly where I've seen benefit, and it's hard to tease out because typically in private practice, it's not set up like an uh, a research study where I'm doing one thing in a controlled way. However, in working with patients, I do absolutely include the use of specific fiber supplements and seeing the benefit on blood sugar management for patients. I work a lot with um, PCOS specifically in our practice. Um, we do often utilize uh, fiber supplements to help with blood sugar control. So in addition to nutrition, food first interventions, we're also utilizing these and seeing benefit there. So um, we'll often use um, inulin-based uh, fiber supplements. We've also used resistant starch supplements too as an option uh, to help with those um, the, the blood sugar management aspect of things. And patients do see a benefit there. Okay, that's great. The proof is in the pudding, right? <laughs> um, so we're, we have a lot of questions that are coming in. So I'm going to take questions from the audience. And if you have a question for Andrea or Hannah, please submit it through the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And remember that you can also view questions from other audience members. And you could just click, click the upvote and we'll know that that question is popular. And of course, we're not going to have time to answer all the questions, but I'm going to do my very, very best to try to cover as many as possible. So I have one from Monica, and her question is, what are the recommendations for recommending prebiotics for individuals with IBS on low FODMAP? So we touched a little bit on this, but if one of you guys can really sort of tackle this head on, it would be great. IBS is so common, FODMAP is, you know, widely used. So this it's a tricky one. Yeah, um, I'm happy to answer this one. So when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome, you know, it, it really comes down to the strategy you're using with patients. Uh, ultimately, what I'm seeing in practice out there is dietitians are still utilizing the low FODMAP diet because it has an excellent base of evidence. However, um, through a lot of practice experience, I think or dietitians are seeing that the low FODMAP diet isn't necessarily appropriate for all patients due to the level of restriction that's required and can create a lot of stress for patients isn't appropriate for certain patient populations, those with disordered eating, uh, those with access to food issues. Um, and so this is where we can consider something like a prebiotic fiber. And so ultimately, um, there is some small studies that show that certain uh, prebiotic fibers, specifically uh, beta-galacto-oligosaccharide. Beta um, I didn't write down the dose. I'm going to have to look that up for you. I, maybe Hannah that's, knows that's off okay. the top of her head. One or two grams, something around that dose. It's quite low. Um, but in an IBS population has been shown to reduce flatulence and uh, symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, which isn't something maybe we would expect given that it is a highly fermentable fiber. Um, so in that case, um, that particular prebiotic fiber has been shown to have specific benefit in irritable bowel syndrome. However, uh, when we look at the different fibers at a whole, as a whole and uh, interventions for irritable bowel syndrome, 
most of the fibers that have evidence are not classified as prebiotic fiber. So specifically, psyllium has fairly strong evidence to use in the management of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's not a prebiotic fiber. Um, uh, partially hydrolyzed core gum has good evidence to use an irritable bowel syndrome, and it's not a prebiotic fiber. So we can use fibers therapeutically. They just don't have the same prebiotic benefit that some of the other fibers we've talked about um, have. And that's okay, because we're looking at symptom management in that case. Hannah, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I think Andrea summarized it again. There, there has been some evidence with the um, beta galacto oligosaccharides that those can still be incorporated within diets of individuals with IBS undergoing a, a low FODMAP diet, and they um, didn't have a exacerbation of the symptoms, but they did have enrichment of bifidobacteria, and those so those prebiotic effects we're looking for. Okay, great. And I imagine like with IBS, because it's so case by case, um, you know, like the same thing would go along with, you know, how much, which ones, et cetera, just to sort of like watch carefully and, um, you know, take it step by step. Um, so here is a question. Are there any contraindications to recommending probiotic or prebiotic? So contraindications for probiotics would be um, somebody who is severely immunosuppressed would be definitely something to consider discussing with a doctor before recommending. Um, I believe it's been a long time since I worked in oncology, but I believe there was a few case studies specifically with yeast-based probiotics and um, sepsis, if I remember correctly. Um, so I, I remember when I worked in oncology, that was something really specific that we considered as somebody severely immunocompromised. Um, we wouldn't want to implement probiotic therapies for specific reasons without conferring with a physician first. Um, otherwise, um, probiotics are quite safe to use. Um, Prebiotics, I don't see any contraindications other than considering the dose and uh, patient symptoms. So, uh, for example, I wouldn't be recommending really high doses of inulin uh, based fibers in my IBS patients uh, due to symptom exacerbation, but including those small amounts, maybe it's like two or three grams in a bar once they've gone through. Uh, elimination, reintroduction, and then to personalization, that might be something they actually tolerate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can just add on there, I would I would definitely echo what Andrea said with the probiotics. And something that's important to keep in mind is that probiotics, especially as a supplement, are not regulated as stringently as a food. So, you know, some of the probiotics that may be incorporated within infant formulas, now those may be being manufactured at pharmacological grade in, you know, very careful, clean facilities. But again, if you've got an at-risk patient like preterm infants or someone with um, cancer undergoing treatments, working very carefully with the medical team and, and just... Um, being cautious in that regard would be absolutely imperative. But again, the general healthy population, as long as you're obtaining a probiotic from a manufacturer that follows the good manufacturing practices and you're, uh, you can be more confident in the health benefits that would be associated with those specific strains. So if you're um, having constipation, there are certain probiotics that are efficacious for that versus others that can be efficacious for antibiotic-associated diarrhea, for example. Um, the only other thing that I just wanted to add is, and I think, Joy, you were kind of alluding to this, but not necessarily a contraindication, but just something to really remember as you're working with individuals on incorporating prebiotics in their diet is to titrate those in and to add them slowly. So um, just want to reiterate this, you know, if you've got a bar you really like, for example, and it's got five grams of a prebiotic fiber in it, and you know that because you're going to figure this out by looking at the label and you're going to read the ingredients and look for those um, inulin, inulin from chicory, 
oligofructose, galacto-oligosaccharides. So you identify those ingredients, but if you have side effects like increased flatulence, you know, start with a quarter of that bar for a couple of days and then go up to half of it. And then you'll be able to titrate that up. So again, not a contraindication for prebiotics, but just something that for individuals that may be scared because of a previous introduction, that could be something to get them, you know, potentially back into incorporating those in their diet by those practical techniques. Super smart. I'm so glad that you brought that up again. And I like the way that you mentioned breaking, you know, a piece, maybe it's a quarter of a bar and then moving from there. Um, and another a question that popped into my head, um, this is Andrea, while you were talking about ask, ask the physician that you're working with. So whether the physician is an oncologist or a, a gastroenterologist or a rheumatologist, do, are you finding that physicians are knowledgeable or completely clueless when it comes to things like prebiotics, post uh, probiotics? They probably know a little bit more about probiotics these days, um, but I, I would be pleasantly surprised if the, a lot of the physicians that we're collaborating with actually do know about prebiotics. I think a lot of dietitians don't even know about them. Yeah, my experience has been is, um, no, they're not really considering prebiotics specifically. And probiotics, I've been working super hard in our community to ensure proper use of them. Um, but yeah, I would say the knowledge gap is still there. We get a lot of just eat yogurt after antibiotics, as opposed to ensuring that there is strain specificity and reducing antibiotic associated diarrhea, for example. So um, mm -hmm. ultimately, I'm seeing definitely still a knowledge gap in, in our healthcare professionals. And I think dietitians are really positioned to um, encourage um knowledge gain in that area for physicians and explaining, you know, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I've suggested this. And this is the research behind it and the benefits we expect. Uh, I, I personally find it really rewarding when um, a patient sees a benefit. For example, we talked about adding those prebiotic fibers in for uh, better blood sugar control. And then I can go back to the physician and say, hey, we did this, this, and this, and this is the benefit we saw. And then physicians get really excited. And those are the sorts of things they bring forth to their patients. So that's one really creative way in which we can share our knowledge with physicians is, you know, showing them how we've worked with patients and the specific benefits that the patients have realized through that. I was thinking exactly add, the same thing. I think it's a huge opportunity for dietitians to not only try things and converse with a referring doctor or a collaborating physician, but also then to do in, in services, you know, full on um, speaking engagements for um, whether it be grand rounds or whether it be um, private practices of physicians and the different subspecialties that you all are working with because they, they're hungry for this information. And it also, I think it makes us as registered dietitians that much more important as a piece of their team. Um, so, you know, it's almost like we have this new secret and it's exciting to be able to share it. Yeah, with the enjoy, if I can just, practitioners. just to add on to what Andrea was saying, I mean, even walking in with some of the published guidelines from their associations. So if you're working with a gastroenterologist, the AGA has published guidelines for biotics and their levels of evidence for certain diseases. So they, those guidelines were um, used the grade format. So they are evaluating them the same way you would evaluate drugs. And so it's a very conservative evaluation of the evidence. But, you know, if someone may be hesitant, that first step could even, you know, it's not just you suggesting this, but there's actually published research within organizations. So AGA and then ISAP is another big one. So the International Society um, for Probiotics and Prebiotics. So the ones that set the definitions for these, they have really nice resources for consumers, the public, you can use the videos when you're um, trying to explain the differences to people, infographics. So utilizing some of the resources instead of recreating the wheel or, or just using them when you create those grand rounds or the education sessions, like you suggested, mm -hmm. can be really helpful. 
And a lot of people are asking about resources. So I just want to remind everybody that we put together, thanks to Andrea and Hannah, a full handout with all sorts of resources. It's not only is it in the chat box, but also it's going to be on the email with the webinar recording. So everybody is going to be able to get these resources and, and the entire handout, um, which is great. And again, like, thank you guys for taking the time to put that together. So I'm going to answer a few more questions. I'm going to ask a few more questions and you all are going to answer them. So um, the and also the handout contains a list of food sources for prebiotics, because that was just one of the questions that I read. And so that's on the handout as well, like a slew of information. So this is from Dale. Are fermented foods in need of prebiotic or do fermented foods contain both? Yeah, I can talk yeah. about that. I did a webinar on this a few weeks ago that you can search on YouTube. Um, I did it in collaboration with ISAP and we answer some of those specific questions. So um, fermented foods have an accepted definition that ISAP put together a panel to define. So those are foods that are created through desired microbial growth to um, convert some of the ingredients to change you know, the flavor profiles or other characteristics in that. So it's important to remember that fermented foods, just because they contain live microbes, do not contain probiotics unless they are defined to the strain level. So it would be most common to consume a prebiotic food that's had a probiotic added in. The vast, vast majority of fermented foods are not probiotic foods. That has um, Those are going to be those specific strains. They can contain prebiotics if they were a food that we include on that list that was fermented. So something like a fermented cereal, if it's a, a wheat cereal, for example, those can contain inulin-type fructans. And so those would be a prebiotic that could be within that specific fermented food. So it will depend on what's fermented. But in general, fermented foods is a separate category from probiotics and prebiotics. Okay. Um, I had no idea about that. That was a great. Thank you, Dale, for asking that question. And thank you for answering that question. So th this is a question from Carly. And I think we touched upon this, but it, uh, it's such an important topic. So I'm going to bring it up again. How do you think pre and probiotics affect mental health, especially for anxiety and depression? So I alluded to this. Um, there is definitely interest and research in this area, we know that there are connections between the gut-brain access, but because they certain microbes can create short-chain fatty acids, for example, and there's been animal studies that show that if you sever the connection between the gut and the brain via vagotomy, you don't get those same anxiety-type responses or reductions when you provide a probiotic. However, the literature is still evolving in this area where most of it is in animals and we're still working to translate it into humans. So we published um, in Nutritional Neuroscience a few weeks back um, some work with a fermented dairy beverage that contains some certain probiotic strains. And they did have an effect slightly on the microbiota where you could see those microbes present. And there was a slight improvement in some of the cognitive tasks. But one of the other studies we're wrapping up now and is under review used galactoligosaccharides and fructooligosaccharides, um, five grams of each per day for healthy adults. And we didn't have any reductions in depression, anxiety, stress, or systematic inflammation. That was um, our original hypothesis, what we set out to test. Those are mostly null. Um, we did see a slight association between individuals that had a, the biggest bloom in bifidobacteria, and they had more positive responses when they were shown positive images. And so this was, you know, more exploratory in that regard, and it speaks to there may be some responders and non-responders because, say, for example, you didn't have mm -hmm. enough of the prebiotic to enrich the bifidobacteria enough you may not see those benefits for stress and anxiety. But I think in general, the evidence, the body of evidence for prebiotics is much more robust when it comes to things like gut health, their contributions to calcium absorption, which is what allowed them to be defined as fibers within the US and um, within Europe. They, 
um, chicory inulin can help with regularity. That body of evidence is significantly more robust, even with metabolic health, than it is with cognitive health. So um, we're, lots of people are doing lots of research in this area, and I think we'll continue to learn more and, and hone in on the doses, the types, the time of day. Um, but right now, most of the published research is that's most robust is in animals, and we know that doesn't always translate to humans. Um, and so I, I'm generally quite cautious in recommending an investment in in those as opposed to maybe some other actually evidence approaches that have more robust grade A evidence in with regards to the microbiota and prebiotics. Okay, so it's like a stay tuned more to come. That would be my overall recommendation. And again, you know, we can go back to we know, you know, there are associations with a healthier diet and lower levels of stress and anxiety. But pulling out the causation of those can be quite difficult because we we're talking about the cost of groceries and it may be that you know the individuals that can afford to buy more plant-based foods are going to have less stress potentially less stress and anxiety in their life because of you know more income and so we need to do these studies to actually tie it out but Either way, at the end of the day, doing simple recommendations like eating the rainbow, trying to increase your dietary fiber um, is in general a safe approach unless they you know, are on a FODMAP or IBS approach. But the bill is, is definitely still out as far as, um, you know, we can't say we're absolutely certain for this approach to treat anxiety in this way. And then you'll feel better. I think that's more something you should talk to your doctor about. Um, and a psychiatrist and um, go different routes other than prebiotics. Okay. And so here's a question for you, Andrea. Um, and I'm wondering this question as well. It, are prebiotics appropriate in normal to high quantities while you're taking antibiotics? So we're talking about yeah, prebiotics, sure. not Yeah. So there's no contraindication to taking prebiotics alongside antibiotics. I'm not aware, maybe uh, Hannah would know, but I'm not aware of any, because we look a lot at the research uh, specifically of administration of specific strains of probiotics to reduce antibiotic associated diarrhea. I'm not aware of any research specifically looking at prebiotic administration to reduce any sort of antibiotic associated diarrhea um, during uh, antibiotic therapies. Um, but the only contraindication would be symptom based. So, uh, if antibiotics are creating antibiotic associated diarrhea, um, prebiotics could exacerbate that in certain patients. So, um, just being aware that, um, they, they may not be helpful in, in symptom management at certain doses would be my thoughts. Um, cause they can absolutely exacerbate symptoms for people. Um, okay. Hannah, so if you're taking, you so, so if you're taking, I, I, oh. I was just going to say, um, just to make sure that I'm clear on that. So what you're saying is if you're taking an antibiotic for a non GI issue, let's say I'm making this up, it's a strep throat. And so you're taking an antibiotic, the, the, um, prebiotics in any amount, they make, may make you have uncomfortable GI symptoms, but maybe, but they're not going to minimize the effectiveness of the antibiotics specifically for, let's say, strep. No, the only concern I would have specifically would be the timing of that because some antibiotics um, require specific timing around foods. So I would still, of course, recommend following your pharmacist and doctor recommendations around okay. timing of food. Okay. But including it in the diet, like let's say you take your antibiotic in the morning, you have a prebiotic fortified pasta uh, with dinner um, and you're getting five grams of inulin, for example. Um, I would absolutely not have a concern with that. Okay. Hannah, did you have anything to add? No, I, I think Andrea hit it right on. I, I um, And I'm not familiar with any evidence 
on, you know, contraindications for prebiotics when taking antibiotics. I would just echo what she said. Um, some of these, like the EFSA claim for chicory root is that that can in, um, contribute to the maintenance of normal defecation by increasing stool frequency. So again, just thinking about that summary of the literature on inulin type fructans in general, they're going to push you more towards more frequent bowel movements. And so if you're someone who's susceptible to antibiotic associated diarrhea, you know, you've had to take these antibiotics for your strep throat before, and you know that a week after you're done with them, you're going to get diarrhea. You know, you may want to keep that in mind and, and pull back on the, the inulin supplemented pasta, for example, but it, it's going to be more individualized in that regard, as opposed to the body of evidence that shows that specific probiotics can be effective at reducing the incidence, the duration, and the severity of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So um, antibiotics, I generally look to the probiotic literature to help out in that regard. Okay. Um, so we are getting so many questions about specific foods. And I know, I'm just going to remind everybody again that um, there, there is a list of foods, everyday foods within the handout. That's again, it's pasted in the chat and you're going to be getting it on the email when you get the recording of the webinar as well. But I just thought, um, let's just go for it one more time. And I'm going to ask each of you guys, let's just talk about regular everyday food. What would you say are some of the absolute top sources for getting prebiotics on, onto the plates and menus of our clients and patients? Just food. We're talking everyday food here. Um, Andrea, you want to go first? Sure. So I think some things that are people are really comfortable with using and cooking with are onion and garlic. They're extremely high in prebiotic fibers. And there are things that fit within a variety of different cuisines. So um, they're often used in, you know, every cuisine and can be easily incorporated. Um, another big one would be whole grains and pulses. Those are the ones that I kind of really focus on with patients beyond just, you know, the fruits and veggies. Those are ones that are really specific and easy to kind of set um, goals around. Right. Maybe it's including onion and garlic once a day. And so let me, I'm going to ask you something about the onion and garlic, because I know that the powders, which are so easy to use, you know, ground garlic powder, onion powder, um, I, they they still have active compounds. So would we still be getting the prebiotics if somebody were to use them more often than actually mincing a whole garlic clove? I'm trying to think like our patients that mm -hmm. don't necessarily love to yeah. cook. That's such a great question. So yes, onion and garlic powders do contain prebiotic fibers. I don't know off the top of my head how much in comparison with the whole um, vegetable. Uh, but I do know that they test high in FODMAP, so they will absolutely contain some of those prebiotic fibers because um, they're dried and ground. Okay, excellent, excellent. Okay, Hannah, let's hear your top food sources. Yeah, I mean, I'm very data-driven, so I was just looking at the list, and Andrea you know, brought up a couple of the really high ones. Garlic is very high on the concentration basis, um, and, and onion is kind of in the middle of the category, but those are, those are really nice ones that again, can fit in Italian cuisine. Um, in our home, we eat a lot of Pakistani food, for example, um, you know, fits in lots of different, um, meals, you know, just looking at the list over here, you also will see artichokes are quite high and then, um, salsify. I, I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly. I've never cooked with it. I just know that the, um, concentration on a per 100 gram basis is, you know, significantly higher than wheat, for example. With artichokes, you're getting around 13 grams per 100 grams versus onions are around four and wheat is only about two. So, you know, again, it is going to depend on what can you actually incorporate in your diet, but the ones that are higher on the list are definitely garlic, artichokes, um, leeks are high up there. And then the um, pulses are, if you're looking for those galacto-oligosaccharides, so lentils, fava beans, chickpeas, um, are some of the examples that we eat within our house. I'm so glad that you mentioned artichokes. Because, and just, just for everybody listening, it doesn't have to be a whole artichoke. 
I like to buy the cans of artichoke hearts. I buy frozen artichoke hearts. I chop them up. I put them in pasta, in salads. I make a mean spinach artichoke dip. There are so many delicious ways to enjoy artichokes. And I love the fact that they're substantial and they're meaty and they sort of like elevate anything that you put them into. And who knew we're getting all this prebiotics uh, and fiber with it. So that's, uh, that's another reason to just sort of rejoice over artichokes. So guys, that's all we have time for today. I told you the, the hour just flies by. I want to thank everyone for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed today's session and got a lot out of it. I know that I sure did. And I want to give my tremendous appreciation to Andrea and Hannah for sharing their insight and expertise and being so, so generous with their time. And I'm telling you guys, when you see the handout, you'll see they have gone up and beyond. You ladies are so terrific and so knowledgeable, and we are all incredibly grateful to both of you. So thank you so, so much. Thank you also to the National Honey Board for making today possible. And most importantly, guys, heartfelt thanks to all of you for tuning in and for making the world a healthier and a happier place. Here's to good health and delicious food. See you next time. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.